0: Today, Jeff and I will be talking with Connor T. Lewis. Connor is a huge collector. Uh, he has a podcast of his own. We're so excited to get to talk with him today about British Isles and some of the items that he collects, uh, including his hickory wood shafts that he loves so much. Uh, we're, we're very excited and enjoy.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Travel Royalty podcast. Thank you for joining us. We're thrilled today to have our new friend, Connor T. Lewis. He is a real estate developer for medical buildings around the country. That's his day job. But his passion is he's the founder and CEO of the Society of Golf Historians, and he's the host of Talking Golf History, that podcast. I'm a huge fan. We'll tell you how the, how you can listen to his podcast at the end. But uh, we're absolutely thrilled to have you today, Connor. Thank you for joining us.
2: No, thank you. I, this is going to be a good discussion. I'm looking forward to it.
1: Yeah, we we are as well. So let's start at the beginning. How did you come to golf?
2: Wow. You know, I came to golf really late in life. Uh, I guess you could blame my brother, Kevin, who's four years younger than I am. Um, I didn't play golf in high school. Oddly enough, um, I actually grew up on one of the two courses that can claim to be uh, the oldest golf course west of the Mississippi. Uh, That was Fairfield uh, Golf and Country Club in Fairfield, Iowa. It was founded in 1892. Um, hmm. We believe it's slightly older than the golf course in Oregon. Am I going to blank on this or not? Um, I'm going to blank on it. It's on the seaside, not Gresham. Anyway, both are 1892. Uh, Fairfield was founded in like March. So, you know, I guess you'd have to be January, February to beat it out. So I feel pretty good on that. But regardless, as I tell people, there's really not a big debate. If you're in the United States and your golf course was Founded before 1895, you're in rare company. I think it's probably 1899. So anyway, I I grew up on this country club. I was a swimmer. Um, My dad played golf. My mom played golf. I had zero interest. Went through high school, not playing golf. Went through college, not playing golf. And my brother picked up the game uh, also out of of college and asked me to play with them. And I went out there, I think like everybody and, and just hacked it up. It was awful. It was terrible. Never, I couldn't understand why anybody would ever play this game. And um, it went a couple years after that and a couple years after that. And I think right around the age of 28. So I'm, I'm going on my 20 years of golf now, weirdly enough. And I, I don't remember a lot other than being terrible. But then I think like most golfers, you know, it takes one or two shots. And, and I'm sure they were lucky ones. To really, you know, grab you. And now I'm a single digit handicapper. I've been playing for 20 years, and I've been very fortunate to, you know, get to play golf in all these special places all around the United States and Scotland.
1: That's fantastic. Now, obviously, very quickly you became enthralled with the game. So, how did you come about starting the
2: Society of Golf Historians? Yeah, I, I, my life is a, a series of accidents, and they have all been lucky ones. I. I, I think Napoleon once said that he, he chose his generals by which of his men were most lucky. I might have been a general from a Napoleon in a, in a different era. I, <laughs> I fall into a lot of things. I, I love golf. I, I, sorry, I love history. I started playing hickory golf really prior to really being entangled in golf history. I just had this idea that it'd be neat. I was aware of like Bobby Jones and old Tom Morris and Walter Hagen. And a gentleman in Iowa, uh, Russ Fisher and Bill Reed, introduced me to Hickory Golf. And I think as soon as I had my first set of clubs, uh, shortly after that, I went to Scotland and played, you know, some of the great golf courses with Hickory Shafted Clubs. And for seven years, I basically only played Hickory Golf. And then the last two of those, I only played Gutty Golf, which is like pre-1900 golf, which is another level of insane. And fast forward, even through that process, I'm living in Florida. Um, I was talking to a buddy who's played the top 100 golf courses in the United States and he, uh, Brian Knotza for the, for the record. And he said something like, you know, you should really go on Twitter. Like somebody would, you know, care if you, you know, talked about golf history on Twitter. And I've said this on my podcast before. I'm like, nobody's going to care. Like nobody cares about, it's not like baseball history. You know, we, we've been really lax, I think, promoting golf history beyond say Ben Hogan. Right. Um, so call that like the 1940s. Everything 1940s is like ancient history and anything before that's widely been disregarded for, you know, decades in the game of golf. And so I got on there and I talked a little bit about uh, architecture under the name Charles Blair McKenzie. It was the, you know, so it was kind of Charles Blair, McDonald, and Alistair McKenzie. Right. And then he, he kind of challenged me again, you know, you should have a, you know, you should start something and do something. And I. So I did the society of golf historians on a, on kind of a whim. And I thought it would be clever. And then, uh, Rod Morey interviewed me for state of the game on, you know, the history of golf or golf's quirky history, something like that. And damn it. I mean, the whole thing just took off. And I, you know, at the time there I was picking up a thousand followers in a month and, uh, you know, he encouraged me to do a podcast of which I said the same thing. Like nobody's ever going to listen to this thing. (laughs) Uh, you know, and then you just end up doing it and it was kind of an accident. And now it's, I don't know, I think between all of social media, we have roughly 50,000 followers of the Society of Golf Historians. I, I should call them members because I don't i don't charge anything to be a member of the Society of Golf Historians. Yeah, um, yeah. it just kind of blew up. It's kind of totally unprecedented, uncalled for, but a delightful uh, surprise. So- well,
1: yeah, I'll tell you what's interesting about that. The, you know, the, the fact that pre- People really don't follow or understand golf history pre Ben Hogan. I would agree with that, but there were wonderful golfers, American golfers, Francis, we met and Gene Sarazen and Walter Hagen. And yeah, there's a funny story. I don't know if you've heard this, but before they started banning, banning is not the right word, but, but notifying former open champions that you're too old to play. I think it's over 60 now. Gene Sarazen was in his seventies and he played at Troon and he wasn't going to make the cut, but the two days that he played postage stamp, he played it in a total of three strokes. Yeah. He had a hole in one and a birdie. I mean, yeah.
2: That's, Unbelievable. Right. Yeah. yeah so, and so many great stories from that era. I think, like I said, I mean, I think there are people that are, are, way better go-tos from like 1940 to 2022 when we talk history. Um, You know, I have, I have a deep appreciation for the Hickory era, Uh, you know, Bobby Jones, Walter Hagen, Gene Saracen, Tommy Armour, the like. And then, you know, further back is, I just think I I honestly, and this is a weird way to put it. It's the sexiest part of golf history um, because there's like, basically how the game was formed happened in that kind of fungible, Malleable era of golf, and you can see all the things we do today are kind of based in that. Call it 1880 to 1935 era. Everything we know as golf today is kind of like formalized there, including the idea of rolling back the golf ball. Right, that came in the 1920s. So yeah. you can see a lot of echoes in history as as you look at the present game. Well, I think there
1: were uh, concerns about um, equipment back then too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, And I've got a great idea for a podcast for you. All right. I'm ready. Okay. Starts here. Go. Okay. You know how you do your research and you uncover something that you didn't expect? Yeah. All the time. I'd say 80% of the time, I find a story that I was not even searching for. (laughs) Okay. So I bought a uh, golf club from the UK and it was made by a guy named Ernie Jones. Have you ever heard of him? Ernest Jones. Yes. Yes. You've heard his story. Uh, I don't know if I know his story. I just know the name. Okay. So uh, he was a young guy that was born in around 1900. He was born in uh, Manchester and he was apprenticed. No, he had to be born before that. He was apprenticed at 16 to be a uh, golf club maker. And So he was probably born around 1890. So in 1908, one year, he was at Preston Golf Club in Wales. And the club that I have has Ernest Jones Preston Golf Club. Very cool. So I'm like, I want to hear about this guy. So I did the research. So he was a club maker, professional. Uh, This is after the time where they would have been making balls, but he was a, uh, a club maker <clears throat> and he was a very good golfer. He played in the open three or four times, never finished outside the top 30, got called up to World War One, and had his um, right leg blown off oh, wow. um, by a landmine. So he comes back to uh, England to uh, recuperate. And as soon as he's able to stand, he goes out and plays a the golf on one leg walking between shots on crutches and he gets to um he finishes the first nine even par so hayden what you need to understand is that back then shooting even par was hard right open scores were in the upper 70s at this time yeah he got tired, and I forget what his overall score was, but it was probably 78 or something like, you know, in the high 70s. Yeah, solid score. So he um, moves to New York. He opens a – he starts teaching golf in the city in a high-rise building in New York City. And I can't remember whether it was uh, Madison Avenue or Fifth Avenue, but he's got – um, high ceilings and he put a big heavy canvas up against the wall and um, he gave more lessons than any other pro for several years because he was doing up to five thousand lessons a year yeah, doing people- at night.
2: yeah right
1: and um when he came over originally he was the golf pro at um you know i should have i should have done my research beforehand but a women's, a women's club on Long Island. Was and, it uh, um, the
2: National Women's Golf Club?
1: That's it. And yeah. so he died in the 60s, but for um, over 30 years, he had a place, he was giving lessons in New York and he wrote books. And, um, you know, one of his lessons, because he learned a lot from having to play on one leg. Yeah, And it changed yeah. the way he <laughs> thought about how can I still play great golf on one leg? And uh, so it, he got fascinated about how you turn and he had this exercise where you would take a handkerchief, like men carried handkerchiefs back then. And you tie a pen knife at the bottom and, and you, I don't know how you swing it without getting stabbed or poking. Yeah, the right, out, but, right. but it was one of those stories like how it, they should make a movie about this guy's life.
2: Yeah, yeah and you can read an instructional book too. I, I seem to remember seeing an instructional book by Ernest Jones as well. Yeah. yeah and it's crazy. What I'll do is um, for, a, for,
1: a, for a while during a, a captain, and, well, when a, a friend of mine was captain of the Murray Golf Club, I was the uh, unofficial club historian and would write articles about the club and golf history. And so I wrote one about him comparing him at the time, to the guy in the Dos Equis commercial. <laughs> the most interesting. You know, yeah. Like, but, yeah. And then I said, you know, by golf standards, um, Miguel Angel Jimenez is very similar to the guy in the. But I would propose that Ernest Jones is the most interesting man in golf. So That's awesome. I'll send it to you. Anyway, no, that was that. a long diversion. So you how did you barely... start collecting? What was that?
0: So I was saying people can barely play golf on two legs. This guy's shooting shoot even on, on yeah. one leg.
1: So how did you start collecting?
2: Uh, you know, my first thing was probably those hickory shafted clubs from. Uh, oh, yeah. The, yeah. And, you know, I, I got into it. I got into it really fierce. Uh, I'm looking at a set across the room. As a matter of fact, that's very similar to what I ended up getting. But I, I decided I was going to go to Scotland and I was going to play the old course in Preswick. Um, played North Barrack, uh, Muirfield, the Honourable Company of Edinburgh Golfer, uh, golfers, and I wanted to do it right. So it wasn't just enough that, in you know, once I picked up these hickory shafted clubs, it wasn't enough that I just wanted to hit them, but I, they had to have some meaning. And so, in talking to Bill and Ross at the time, I was like, you know, what's the greatest set of hickory shafted clubs you can get, or you can buy? And they, their recommendation at the time was a set of Tom Stewart RTJs, right? And I have a little bit of history here, but um, Tom Stewart was the greatest club maker of his era, of the Hickory era, really. He made clubs for Bobby Jones. He made them for Gene Saris and Tommy Armour, Harry Varden, James Braid. I mean, you name it. Uh, at Francis, we met, won uh, the Open Championship, or the US Open in 1913, playing Tom Stewart clubs from St. Andrews. And so this RG, RTJ set, uh, came about, we think, around 1926. So 1926 to 1931. Uh, Tom Stewart was asked by Bob Jones to make him a set when he made one of those first tours of Scotland. So he made him a set, and, you know, all were customized for Bob Jones' liking. And, you know, they, they weren't really stamped with anything other than maybe uh, Bobby Jones' uh, signature, which I have one of those clubs behind us here, too. So Robert Tyre Jones Jr. would be the signature on the back of the club. And what happened, or what we believe happened, somewhere between 1926 and 1930, uh, Tom Stewart found himself essentially making, uh, it's hard to call it a bootleg set, set, but he didn't have permission from Bob Jones to use his initials. And he started stamping these special forged clubs that he made, RTJ, on the toe of the club. So you could buy technically a set, I think I should count them, I have a full set in the corner here and I don't want to screw this up. I want to say there were 11 clubs in the set. It included the Calama Jamie putter. Might have been 12. Anyway, um, the full set, and he'd stamp them RTJ, and they are amongst some of the rarest irons, you know, in the world, really. I mean, I think from these match set standpoints, there may be five of these sets that I have in my office here. There's maybe five known out there that are full 12, and so I decided that's what I had to play if I was going to Scotland and. Ross and Bill were like, yeah, you're not going to get a set like that. And I had no hopes of getting a, a full set, but I, I thought getting a one iron through um, a Niblick, which would be maybe eight clubs of the 12, eight of the, uh, 11, 12, whatever that number is. And I thought, I just want a playable set. So they still said, no, you can't get them. You're never going to find it. <clears throat> and I, I put together a plan um, that I've used many times since uh, when I have to find something that is rare, which is, I have a a very large group of collectors, the Gulf Heritage Society for for instance, is a great group of collectors. And I would go to five people and I'd say, you know, I'm trying to find this club or this set in this case. Um, do you know where I could, do you have it? They'd say, no. Okay. Can you name five people that might have it? and each of the five are naming five. So now I have 25 people. So I reach out to each one of them, and if they don't find it, I ask for five people, and I basically scour the earth. And about I think about a month's time, I had a set. So you know that's a that's a that's a, a industry level secret that I've used that's now out there. But um, you know if you ever really want to find something, there's great networks, and you can use my method to track down almost anything. I, mean, I guess it doesn't have to be golf history related, but it could probably be just about anything. So I bought a set, and I went over there, and I had. Uh, Played, you know, the old course, I think I shot 79 using hickory shafts at the old course. And after that round, it was probably only my second or third round playing hickories. I, I just said to myself, oh, my gosh, if if I can shoot in the 70s, why the heck would I play modern equipment? <laughs> and that started that kind of seven year odyssey of just playing hickory equipment that, that was only broken at Elmcrest Country Club in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, when I was playing with a guy who was playing moderns. And he was like, here, hit my brand new driver. And I hit it and it went like 310 yards. And I was like, <laughs> oh man, it was like crap. I mean, it was like, you know, I was hitting like 260, 250 yard drives at Hickory. And all of a sudden, like 50 yards just appeared. And I mean, then I started cheating and I was like, had a modern set, had a Hickory set, set had a gutty set. And then I went from a gutty set to, you know, just a modern set. And now I'm, I have sets all around me, but I haven't really played Hickory golf in a couple years. So, The collection kind of built from that and the craziest part about this to be honest with you is i had this i had a really firm idea in my head that i would never own anything in my collection like a golf club that i wouldn't use so i literally took that to the nth degree so as i mentioned back in this corner Rieger, i own uh, one of bobby jones's personal clubs it's a mashy Niblick from the 1920s, which, again, has a signature stamped on it, Robert tire Jones Jr. For about a year, that was in my playset. Uh, wow. So, you know, I won't tell you the value of that club today because I don't know it, but it's certainly in the five figures and it might be even in the six. And I was swinging uh-huh. it freely on the golf course. I've gone to Marion where he finalized the Grand Slam and I took it and I put it in my bag of modern equipment and i had everybody in the group just you know i was like listen you should hit it and they were like oh yeah i can't do it and i just said well let's hit chips with it so at least you can say you've hit a club that was owned and used by bobby jones and just recently that club and the bronze bust of bobby jones that i have my office were on display uh at oakmont country club for the last year's u.s amateur and i think the day Can't remember. I think it was the day we took it out of the display case. I took it out to the 18th green, and let a couple groups coming through chip some shots into the 18th green with it. So, you know, it's hopefully a cool experience they'll always remember.
1: Yeah, that's very cool. I I went to Muscleboro. Yeah, about ten
2: years.
1: I know that's one of your favorite places. I went there about ten years ago with some. I took my buddies, and I took uh, a Haskell ball and um three of my clubs yeah and we would take turns playing a hole with those three clubs and um including the calamity jane putter that i have yeah um and i remember parring 18 with those three clubs yeah which awesome, is right? when you it's remarkable when you think about it but anyway you've I, got
2: you, i, I go had ahead. a shot one of the greatest shots i ever hit in my life was at St. Andrews playing Hickory Shafted Clubs. Uh, It's also a tragic story, not a tragic, like nobody died other than maybe my soul. Uh, But I had hit the ball into Hell Bunker and I was, I told the caddy I was going to hit it out with these Hickory Shafted Clubs. And he's like, you know, it's, it's not possible. I'm not going to do a Scottish accent because I don't want to offend people. Uh, But he's like, it's it's just not possible. You can't get it there. And I was like, "I, I feel strong about it. Anyway, I, I take a mighty swing, and my dad's standing behind me with my camera, and there's this photo of my follow-through with a puff of sand, and out of this puff of sand, almost like a nuclear explosion on top of it is this golf ball, and it ends up like four feet from the flag. It was like the greatest shot I ever hit, wow. and, and even better, this photo, and uh, the very next day, we played Musabra, and I dropped my camera somewhere on the course, and that photo, along with... A photo of me standing with my father on Swilken Bridge is gone. Now, I have a photo with his camera somewhere in the office here of me standing on Swilken. I have a photo of him standing on Swilken, also <laughs> taken with his camera, but not the one of us standing together. And to your point, was on his 65th birthday.
1: Yeah, Oh, that's amazing. Ugh,
2: tragic, well, you've whatever. collected, you moved into art oh yeah um, big in art as you can see from behind me i know that your viewer or the listeners can't but big in yeah, art all and i like 1800s art
1: yeah i've got some i've collected um old photographs of murray yeah right and including old postcards yeah where people had written you know to someone hey we're having a lovely time at the beach in Lossiemouth mouth and and uh, I've got them hanging up in the guest bedroom that Hayden stayed in. But uh, well, what's one of the most surprising things that you've learned about golf history that are, you know, in your research that our listeners wouldn't know about?
2: That's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think one of my favorite stories from golf history, and there's lots of them, is that um, I actually did a podcast on it. And it's called uh, the Stolen Major. And I think that's one of the coolest events in golf history in that, um, you know, it takes place in the 1800s, which, again, is a forte of mine. It takes place in the 1890s where we're still trying to understand, you know, how golf is being played and what it looks like. And in the 1892 uh, Open Championship was supposed to play, be played. At Musabra, another, you know, one of my underdog stories that I like to tell. And essentially what happened was the the links were crowded, right? And you know this, you have played there. It was only, it's only nine holes. It's always been nine holes. It's hosted the Open Championship as a nine hole course six times. So here it is. It's about ready to host it uh, the seventh time in 1892. And the Honorable Company of Edinburgh Golfers, I think, just got fed up with, A, the course conditions because it was a crowded course of multiple clubs that belong there, uh, including Royal Musabra, and, um, and they just decided, like, we can't get on the course because it's overcrowded. Um, you know, it's not in the best shape because it's overcrowded, and we want our own golf course. So essentially, in 1891, they hire old Tom Morris to build the 18-hole course on the land that they have today, uh, which is Mirfuel, right? So. along this whole process they're building this golf course and the communication to uh you know the rna to uh the folks at muscle uh to the players that were going to play in the open championship was hey we're going to have this open championship at muscle well that changed and i might get the timing right but i believe it was 85 days out prior to the open so less than three months uh they decided i don't i I wouldn't want to call it on a whim The Open is no longer going to be played at Musselbra. It's going to be played at our new course at at Muirfield. And there was a huge uproar, um, a massive uproar, which quite frankly could have possibly um, ended the Open Championship in all history that followed, including our U.S. Open, of course. So what happened is they they pulled the plug, if you will. Um, Folks from St. Andrews, folks from Musselbra, folks from Edinburgh, All were upset that, you know, they kind of did this on their own. And the agreement was that there was going to be a three course road, which would include it It wasn't an agreement that would include Muirfield. So uh, led by many people, but most importantly, Willie Park Jr. Willie Park Jr. Decides he's going to throw a rival uh, open championship, hold it on the same day and double the prize money with his own money, by the way. So, you know, it wasn't crazy money. It might have been like 50 pounds, right? Might have been less than that, but let's call it 50 pounds. So maybe it was 25 before and Willie Park says, we're going to hold the Mussobra open, you know, the true open at Mussobra and we're going to give out double the pay. So all of a sudden you have a slew of players that are saying, well, you know, I'd rather have the money, you know, the open is the open. It's definitely important, but money was money. And these pros, they made their living by winning events. You could buy a house with your winnings. So all of a sudden, money became important. And there was this, I'd say, a month long, month and a half long battle over the Musabra Open and the Open Championship. Where is it going to be held? We know the Open staying at Mirfield. We know that Musabra Old is going to hold uh, the Open at the Musabra Open, I should say. And there's this battle. And cooler heads prevailed uh, probably to, the detriment of Musabra, and they moved their championship a week early, which turns out to have had almost the same field, and Willie Park Jr. won it, Uh, and in 1892, of course, the Open is played at Muirfield. It is in, I think, I don't think it'd be exaggerated to say the course was in horrid condition. It was less than a year old, you know, the grass was still coming up, treacherous conditions, and Harold Hilton ended up winning that Open. Um, and it, it really kind of defined two things. One, the Open Championship never returned to Musgra. Um, The five or six clubs that belonged to Musselburgh soon gravitated away from the club. And all of a sudden you had this hub of golf in Scotland, which many people don't realize was the near equal or the equal to St. Andrews. It rots away you have all these club makers, right, you know, move to Edinburgh and move to other clubs. You have ball makers that move away like Gourlay um, and Willie Park Company moves away. And all of a sudden it's just this deterioration of uh, the ambiance of golf in Musbrook to what we have today, which is a nine hole golf course that is still competing to be relevant. When, you know, folks go over on a tour, a lot of people overlook the nine hole course, and, you know this course that's hold, held six Opens, which was part of the original Open Rota. And all of those things can be rewound back to the stolen major. So to me, I mean, I just find that story fascinating because it, let's face it, if the Musbra Open was successful and they did compete with the Open Championship and the Open Championship just wasn't played, a couple things could have happened. There, you know, uh, one, the Musgra open uh, offering more funds becomes the dominant major event. I doubt that happens, but if that happens, this is three years before the U S open and the USGA are formed. Uh, And do we have a U.S. open that's based on the play of the open championship? Um, There's uh, so many different things that could categorically fail that would lead to not having four majors today. And all of them stem from that single event.
1: Yeah. Well, I think, in all likelihood, it would have died a death at some point just due to the fact that it was nine holes. It's so tight. Yeah. I mean,
2: 25 well, years later. Is, yeah, the funny thing is there have been plans over, I mean, over 100 years old to expand to 18 holes. You uh, know, That land was available uh, for Mossabra. I, I mean, I want to say it was, I want to say this was 1899 nineteen hundred somewhere around there. There was a proposal to expand to 18 holes. And each time it got rejected. And so now we have, And as a matter of fact, even now it will never happen. Uh, but in the last decade, um, I would say that I chimed in. I would not say I was an advocate or any part of that discussion, but there was a plan to expand the golf course um, towards uh, the Firth, right? So now there's a lot of land on, on the Firth there. And prior to that, you know, most people don't know this, Muspra used to be on the sea. There, there's a hole there called the sea hole because it sat on the water. And because of mining wow. and you know, taking all of the, the uh, rubbish, I guess, from, uh, from mining and basically filling it out in the firth, we now have this beautiful kind of parkland setting just outside the walls of Musbra that could be expanded to add another nine holes, but will never be in my opinion. Yeah. So quirky history.
1: Well, I know 25 years later, Presswick got shut down because it became too small to to host the crowds and the players. And so you've talked about the um Robert Trent Jones golf clubs, but are those the most are those your favorite piece of golf memorabilia,
2: Young? Now you're asking me to cheat. Um You know, I don't know. That is a good question. Um you know. my, my Bobby Jones Club, I'm trying to think, it might be the most valuable thing. Got some things in here. Um, you know, it's funny. If we look back at the, the, the recent fire, right, of Oakland Hills, um, I've been in talks with a couple different clubs to, you know, ba- basically build a protocol. And, and the question is this. Uh, if the building's on fire and you can only save three things, what would you save? Uh, I might burn in my own fire. I don't know if I could make that decision. <laughs> I, I just, I mean, I don't look at things necessarily by how much they're worth. It's more of like their importance to, I don't know if it's me or the game. Uh, so like over my shoulder right there, uh, that is one of the oldest scorecards known to exist from Leith Links, uh, it's June 3rd, 1820. And the gentleman who played that round, John Condell, uh, was actually one of the authors of one of the earliest books of the Rules of Golf uh, for the Thistle Golf Club. And he shot a uh, 81 in, on June 3rd, 1820, in an interclub club match. And I think I love this scorecard, first for that history, right? You have an early um, author of the Rules of Golf. You have one of the oldest scorecards known to exist. But then underneath his score, he literally writes, disgraceful. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of like we know 81 sucked at leaf links because he wrote disgraceful and he was known to write notes on his scorecard so there's things like that and you know the paintings oh, are all near and dear uh i one of the things that i will would be very hard for me to separate um with and i talked about it on my podcast with mungo park is i have a photographer of willie park senior who is uh the you know the first golfer to ever win the Open Championship, and it's relatively life size. Uh, if he were standing here, that's about how big his head would be. And um, it was it was made by um, the the gentleman who took the photogravure is the gentleman who painted the full scale painting for the Park family, which now exists in the RNA Clubhouse. And so I am a Musbray fan. He hails from Musbray. He won the first Open. Uh, it's very central to my collection, for that reason, I have no idea what it's worth. Um, and Mungo's writing a book soon on uh, the park and Mussobra history, and that photographure will be in the book. So, I, you know, I don't know. The Bobby Jones Club would be. I, I have a bronze bust of Bobby Jones. That's I, there are very few of them. Uh, there are, is one in the USGA Museum. There's a version of it that sits in the Augusta National Clubhouse, and then one sits here in my golfers. That would be hard uh, to get rid of, but I don't know. It's kind of like choosing which of your children you love the most. There's an answer, but you'll never tell them. Right. Well, <laughs> I'm kidding. Because I'm,
1: Hayden's like, on this. I'm kidding. Because Hayden's with me, I can tell him that his wife is my favorite child. That's right. That's right. So, <laughs> so I got uh, one thing my I, wife. I have to tell you or ask you. I love this where. Um, You and Steven Proctor had in your hands, young Tom's butter. What was that like?
2: Yeah, that whole experience was amazing. Um, You know, I'm going to give you a flip side to that story. Um, But, you know, we were sitting there with, uh, I'm trying to think it was, ooh, whose open championship medal was that? I'm blanking now. He had a falling out with the RNA. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it was uh, gilded. Yeah, it actually says British Open Champion on there. And, and I, th- I thought that's the only Open Championship medal I've ever seen that said British Open on it. Was uh, that Willie was like, Park Jr.? No, it was not. It was an American. It was a, somebody who had moved to the United States. Oh, yeah. Jock Hutchinson? Jock Hutchinson. That's exactly uh, what it was. And I'll be honest with you. I was, I was thrilled to have all those items in my hands. Now, I'm going to tell you the story behind this. It's not a well known story. Uh, there is some, I think, reputable um intel that that club was not owned by Tom Morris Jr. So you learned this uh, after the fact, I'm assuming. Yeah, no, obviously, after the fact. So we had you know released the podcast, and I think um, someone had listened to it who was an authority on you know, golf clubs and basically said, you know, this club would not have been around with these markings at that time. And what's interesting is it's it's one of these amazing facets about history, because think about the um, the history of that club and, you know, the provenance behind that club. I mean, it was in the, was in the World Golf Hall of Fame right. for like 50 years, right? You would not think then an item coming out of a museum with that reputation would have any questionable heritage behind it, right? And yet here we are. So that that did uh, that it right actually up, sell at auction? No, or was did it did not. They pulled it. They they rightfully pulled it. Uh, I will not. You know, it's definitely not the fault of of heritage. Uh, they went with the provenance that was given to them by the World Golf Museum. Uh, I've seen that provenance. I've read that provenance, and it is strong. But it just goes to show you, when you have an item that's you know near 150 years old, there's a lot of things that come into consideration beyond, you know, this was sold to me you know in the 1890s, and here's where it happened from there. there there's also a distinction here to be talked about, and this, and this is scary for, I think, not necessarily collectors, but uh, it would be interesting to really know how many young Tom Morris, I'm using quotation marks for you at home uh clubs are out there so back in the 1900s i'd say early 1900s maybe possibly late 1890s um tom morris had opened up young tom morris's locker that was in his shop at st andrews and people would come by and it was not abnormal as the story goes for old tom morris to give away young tom morris's clubs and this happened for years. Now, I get what, you know, old Tom Morris did not mean to deceive anybody, mind you. Uh, he was just keeping the spirit of his son alive. He's giving them away, he's not selling them. And as a result, there could be a hundred clubs out there that have been some level of providence from old Tom Morris, mind you, that they were young Tommy's clubs. And in, in fact, they were made in the shop maybe the day before and put back in that locker when he gave away the one prior. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, it, it gets tricky, right? I mean, the funny thing is um, in golf collecting, uh, this isn't a great thing to say, I'll, I'll, but I'm going to say it is something has prov- If something has provenance, it's valuable, right? Yeah. Assuming, you know, someone finds valuable in that item that doesn't necessarily mean it is what it is. It just has provenance that makes it valuable. Yeah. So if I have, if I sign my name, you know, Bobby Jones on here, which I would never do by the way, but if I signed Bobby Jones on this piece of leather and I sent it out and I'm not saying, you know, hopefully everybody would say that's fake, you know, you're BS, but if there's one guy that says, that's Bobby Jones' signature, this piece of leather has more valuable than the, you know, scrap that it is. Right. And that's, and that's a risk collectors are, have to take. I mean, artwork, the same. I mean, these pieces, you have to do a lot of due diligence when you're collecting clubs or art or anything to make sure you're buying, you know, what is the real deal. And that's why it's also difficult for people who don't, have that expertise, you know, uh, I've built my expertise over, you know, 20 years of study, um, doesn't mean everything is perfect, but at least, you know, the things I have in my collection, the things I help people find, at least we have done, you know, our due diligence to make sure they have what they're paying for, if you will. But, well, it it seems to me that if,
1: if you want to find a, an authentic young Tom club you need to go back to your old method of calling five people have them give you five names and
2: you know again though you run into the whole thing of is it young Tom's club or did old Tom Morris give it away as one of young Tom's I mean young Tom had like seven clubs how can there be a hundred of them right yeah right so so I've got a quick I've got
1: a I've got a quick question for you yeah fire away who's your favorite golfer from each of these three eras (laughs) the feathery the Gutty and the Haskell.
2: Okay. That's a good one. Um, hmm. I'm going to say I'm going to say Alan Robertson from the Feathery. Um, He doesn't get enough credit because obviously he didn't win an Open, but then again, we don't have Opens if he's not that good. So Alan Robertson died in 1859, wildly heralded as the greatest golfer that had ever lived up to that point. Uh, He taught Top might be a hard word. Um, old Tom Morris apprenticed under Alan Robertson and likely built up his golfing skills, either watching Alan Robertson or redefining or his work to beat Alan Robertson. So the grand old man of golf is old Tom Morris, revered for certain, um, but I'd like to give the nod to his predecessor, Alan Robertson. Okay. Then we get into the gutty. That's a tough one. I mean, I kind of want to lean towards, man, that's a tough one. It's like, you know, again, it's like picking. So, um, I'm so you're the, struggling with
1: uh, young Tom versus one of the yeah, parks,
2: I, you know? Yeah. It's, it's definitely going to be a park versus, um, a park versus Morris argument and each are equal in its day. I'm going to side with Willie Park Sr., who also, all three of them, old Tom Morris, young Tom, and Park Sr., all won four Open Championships. Um, But again, I'm going to give it to Park for a similar reason of Alan Robertson. If it weren't for Park's moxie uh, in challenging Alan Robertson and playing these amazing marathon matches for old Tom Morris, which were published, uh, you know, across the kingdom, the open championship isn't the open championship without somebody wearing the black hat. In St. Andrews, that black hat was worn by Willie Park Sr. In Musabra, that black hat was worn by old Tom Morris. And our game is basically defined by rivalries. And what better way to throw gasoline on a fire than uh, Willie Park Sr. So I'm going to give him that. I mean, Harry Varden would have a an amazing argument that would be almost impossible to match uh and quite frankly i probably should have chose him because he actually could be considered the pied piper of golf in america when he came over in 1900 um with the gutty still and kind of blew up um you know our growth in the united states uh we'll switch to uh the wound ball um you know i'm, I'm gonna go for showman over uh uh society so i'm gonna go with walter Hagen, um even though bobby jones is club right over here and i I love them both they're like they're like equals to me but there's something to be said about walter Hagen, and i think his his gift to golf may even outweigh the grand slam and bobby jones and of course augusta national because he really made the profession of being a golf professional that much more important you know he was he was a catalyst to get golf professionals into the clubhouses where they were banned. Uh, he was, you know, quite possibly the first ever golfer to make a million dollars. Uh, he was making more money than Babe Ruth in his day. Um, he changed the outlook of the professional being this, you know, greedy, drunken caddy into more of a drunk, drunken golfing social social. Life. And then, you know, yeah. what? that's not fair. That's not fair. It, it is. It, Here's my contention with Walter Hagen, and I, and I love him dearly. Uh, he's in my office as well. I have an oil painting over here in the corner. Um, and really, Bobby Jones and Walter Hagen are well uh, represented, even though most of my golf is, golf is his 1800s. But there is a, a fine misunderstanding of, of Hagen that I think is portrayed probably more in movies than anything, is that he was kind of like this fat drunk. Uh, he was six foot, maybe six foot one, five 11, six foot one, somewhere in there in his prime, he weighed 180 pounds. Um, so he was not thin. He was muscular In his prime. He was very careful of how, what kind of shape he was in. He also was not a heavy drinker. A lot of people think he was really? he played psychological games of going to bars and, you know, speakeasies with people and being seen. Uh, But, you know, one historian once said that um, most of his drink ended up in the fern that was right next to the door. So he'd go through a lot of glasses, but he might not necessarily have been consuming them. Another really cool factoid about uh, Walter Hagen is he is really never to have known to swear. Uh, He he had a demeanor that was always level-headed, you know, never hurry, never worry, take time to smell the roses is one of his quotes that I think ben hogan used later on in his life too but you know he just had the right attitude like it's okay to miss a shot right one miss is not going to define your round uh, golf is a game of recovery and i don't think anybody in the history of the game had that mindset better than him of that not to get flustered over a bad shot a bad shot is always an opportunity right well I
1: think I'm surprised you didn't take Harry Varden, but I love your argument for Walter Hagen. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, he was known to show up in his tuxedo. Oh yeah. And based on what you're saying, that's gamesmanship, not.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, know, and I think he wanted to show up late to like, just say, I didn't have to practice a great story that I just heard the other day, by the way, I'll tell you about Walter Hagen. Walter Hagen was, um, fond of playing my country club in Florida, Bel Air. Bel Air Country Club is the oldest course in Florida, 1897, designed by Donald Ross, or redesigned by Donald Ross, in 1913, 36 holes. And we are about ready to publish our 125th anniversary book this year. And Hal Bodley, who is writing it, I've helped him with the research, told me the other day that on um, our world famous 14th hole on the East course, Just to the south of it sat a casino on the water. And it was a legal casino, mind you. And this illegal casino sat on the water in the 1920s. And they were playing the Florida West Coast Open at Bel Air, which was the the first, um, we were the first course to host it. It was the first course of the PGA Florida Swing, which still exists today. And Hagen was in his tuxedo and tails at this casino, which was rather formal, all through the night. And apparently he's down on his luck and he's trying to win his money back. When somebody walks in, in, you know, with his limo, probably his limo driver saying, we need to get you the course you tee off in two minutes. And so just like that, you know, I guess he gives up on the endeavor trying to win his money, jumps in the limo drives, you know, 10 blocks. He's got his clubs, walks up to the, you know, first tee in his tuxedo and plays 18 holes in a tuxedo. It's that's Walter Hay, you know, and I mean, that's what
1: him. we need. In go- we need more characters like that, right, yeah. that are yeah, swashbucklers, so to speak. Well, I love the story about him at Royal Sinkports, where they wouldn't let him into the clubhouse, yeah. so he changed his clothes in his chauffeur-driven limousine and, you know, right at the foot yeah. of the, the building. Yeah. I love that.
0: Well, yeah. let's move that- on
1: to your pod. Oh, go, yeah, ahead. go ahead. No, 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 you're fine. I was going to say, let's move on to the podcast. This is... Uh, without a doubt, my favorite podcast. I listen to, I've got a collection of different podcasts. Um, yeah. Yours is my favorite. I, I literally can't get enough of it. I've considered myself a student of golf history, but I learn something every time I listen to you. Um, and it's uh, it would be unfair of me to ask who your favorite guest is because you might offend someone. Yeah, I, but I'll, I'll tell you.
2: I'll, I'll say this. Um, I don't know if there's a favorite. I would say my series with Ben Wright were extremely moving. Um, You know, he's since passed. He wasn't in great health uh, when Von Halliard and I, Von Halliard filmed uh, the last two episodes we did with him. And, you know, unbelievable delight to hang around with. Uh, You know, he had a walker at the time, I believe his back was broken, wasn't in the greatest of health. And yet, you know, just welcome us into his house made us feel welcome and and i i think that's that's one of the coolest things about this podcast is um not that i don't think ben wright will ever be forgotten but his voice went quiet there for a while right Right. Uh, and that's what happens i mean i think you know my recent uh, interview with al guyberger um was a, a fantastic sit down with one of the most polite gentlemen I have ever met in my life. And to have the opportunity to talk to these folks, um, you know, where and they have time to reflect back on their career. It's a totally different interview than if, for instance, I sat down with Tiger Woods today, right? He's in the middle of his career. It's fantastic, uh, whether it's, you know, any of these gentlemen, Dean Beeman was a fascinating one. And just to have them feel free to have a voice and have an opinion and put it out there without, you know, the, the worry of retribution, right. Of the words they say, coming back to haunt them. Uh, that's one of the beauties of, you know, being retired is being able to, you know, say your piece. But I mean, like Ben, Wright, I mean, I wish you all, ah, gosh, I wish you all could have heard the story of I I did the podcast called Ben Wright and the Beatles, which. That was
1: fascinating. I mean, that was.
2: that podcast should literally have a million downloads because it, it's, it's beyond golf, right? It is literally, you know, the Beatles and how he basically gave them their first TV appearance, how he dressed them the way they exactly. In the and like, he's telling the story, but the problem is for everybody who listened to that podcast is you don't understand how it came about. So I had finished three hours, maybe of interviewing him. And I'm I'm heading back to Tampa, Florida. I'm packing up my gear. And his wife comes in the room and she says, Did you tell Connor how you were the first person to put the Beatles on TV? Like, drops it like that. And I'm like, What? And he's like, No, I didn't talk about it because it's not golf history. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) And so he tells me the story that everybody hears on the podcast, but I don't think you know the listener will never know the difference but the way he told it the first time telling me you know it's kind of like it's almost like an echo right if if you hear my echo it's not quite the same as hearing my voice it comes back a little distorted and when we came back I don't know three weeks later and we had the camera and you know we did the interview um, you know there's not the same level of surprise coming from you know, the excitement of Ben telling me the story for the first time and me hearing it for the first time, like i was still excited and I still reacted, but it wasn't as, um, it might not have been as genuine as in the moment where, I mean, I just blew up. Right. I mean, it was like yeah. the most amazing story I've ever heard. So, well, had that yeah. Irish tenor not gotten ill or had, oh, yeah. I, mean, I mean, again, it's kind of like the Open Championship going to Muirfield.
1: Everything changes, right? Yeah, who knows what would have happened to the Beatles? And then him saying, "You can't
2: come on, scruffy like that. Take him yeah. to the department store and you get him some suits." Yeah, you know, he's like, "You ragamuffins," you know. He's—I can still hear him saying, "Like calling him ragamuffins," you know. And give then after, some <laughs> and then after four
1: sessions their manager wants them to pay like 15,000 pounds or some crazy amount of money.
2: I don't even like their music. You know what I mean? It was like, and he didn't, it was just so, or like, you know, Harrison trying to give him a Ferrari. I mean, he's like, the the story is just insane. I'm like, I'll never understand uh, how that doesn't have a million downloads because I just think it's there's something in that episode for everybody, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, I'll tell you the, the one, that got me. Um, was and I don't, I'm not asking you to tell me, but I'm assuming yeah. he told you when he punched that guy in the mouth in Texas. Did he tell you who that was? He did. Okay, I can't tell I, you. I know, Dude, I know. I have to go with me. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm not asking you to, but um, I turned my buddies onto this, right? Yeah. And we're like guessing who it is, right? Yeah. And we couldn't even get close. And what I mean by that is it like, was it Tom Kite? Now Tom Kite wouldn't be. No, you know, it, wasn't, it and, wasn't
2: a top tier guy, obviously,
1: but that was hilarious. I'll tell you the other thing he said, what he did to, to uh, Gary McCord. Oh yeah. It's a funny story, but how rude could you be? Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. for those of you who, who, who didn't hear the podcast, Ben Wright takes um Gary McCord to meet, Ben Hogan for the first time. Ben and Gary, or excuse me, Ben and Ben are good friends. Yeah. Ben's actually named himself after Ben Hogan. That's yeah. yeah, right not even Hogan. the first name, right? And he goes, Hey, he calls him in advance. Says, hey, I want to bring a friend by. And and Ben Hogan says, Hey, any friend of yours is a friend of mine. They show up. He says, This is Gary McCord. Ben says, What do you do for a living? Yeah. I play on the PGA tour. Hmm, Never heard of you. How long have you been out there? 18 years. Never heard of you. How many times have you won? Yeah. Not, I haven't won yet. Then what the F are you doing out there? And walk around and and never said another word to him. Just walks. Just walks. I was, my mouth was agape. I'm like, that's, that's hilarious, but um in a later podcast i guess it was you talked i mean he wasn't
2: the friendliest guy yeah right you had to be, I mean, had to be in a circle right yeah i think that's, I mean, that's probably the best way to put it and i think you know he was blunt you know i mean let's face it i mean ben hogan you know won nine majors you know i, I think he went i'm gonna screw this up but maybe 50 events maybe it's seven and i think it's like 50 events and i i don't think He could ever have imagined himself playing on the PGA tour without, you know, winning. I think he would have done something else, you know? I mean, he probably would have been like a prison warden or something. I mean, like, I don't think you'd ever want to cross that, you know? Right. Well, Well, I'll I'll say cut of that same cloth. I might, I think you might say Clifford Roberts was the same kind of way, you know, rough around the edges, you do it my way, or we're not going to have this conversation. I mean, there's other things you could probably say about Clifford Roberts, but I think from a, a personality standpoint, they might be very close. And Ben yeah. got around along with both of them, you know, fantastically. Yeah. Well,
1: you know, ben, ben Wright's story about how he got hired by Cliff Roberts is fascinating. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, but I'll tell you what, Ben Wright had a fascinating life and those story the story that he told the, as a child, how they would rob the the uh downed aircraft and sell the parts and take the the german pilots wallets and medals and yeah i mean can you imagine your children or children today i mean yeah
2: and there were you know that was one of those times where um you know it's i don't know if it was uncomfortable but it was such you know an odd discussion and it was fascinating but it's like you know he's basically taking stuff off of a dead man Right. Right. And like, you know, we've never lived in, you know, fortunately in the United States, we've never lived in a world that's had enemy combatants other than the Civil War crash their planes on our country and, you know, gone into a spiral like that. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, like, put myself in that perspective, you know, and try to handle it.
1: You well, know, the only reason they stopped was that the one plane exploded.
2: Yeah, yeah, right. no, they I would have kept going for sure. Yeah, yeah. but um, again, you know, they're also in a, you know, there's they were also suffering a great depression, and if you could sell things to help out the family, there's all these different considerations that you know come into play there.
1: Yeah, I, I felt the same way you did, Connor. When I'm listening to it, it's it's a little unsettling. Like these, you're these are dead soldiers, right? Yeah, but you it's it, you need to put it in the proper context of the time. They were Nazis. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, 100%. Um, I want to move on to uh, Tony Jacklin, who was, I can't believe how honest he was. Oh, wow. Right.
2: I mean, his about- stories are fascinating
1: and about how, how he became a golfer, but when he calls out Dan Sykes and Bob Golby and a couple of others for not wanting them on tour and how wow. Dan Sykes said, you know, Hey, I was playing here last year with the leader and he hit it in the water and then he hits it
2: in the water. You're like, what? That's an a-hole. I know. I mean, who would do that? There, there's a long history of, of, I'd say, bad American behavior uh, towards the Euros that goes way back further than that. Um, You know, I I think we've always, I I mean, it's changed now, clearly. Right? We've got Rory's on our tour now all the time, but you know, back then, and, and even before, um, you know, it was looked upon as our tour, don't come over here. And Tony Jacklin coming over as, you know, this bright spot, two-time, you know, major winner, uh, Ryder Cup champion, uh, hero, if you will, uh, you know, I think he saw the last, I don't know, the last grasp of I don't know if you want to call it colonialism or anything like that, or, or, or hate towards colonialism or something like that. But I think you saw the last gasp of, you know, this is America. and This is our tour. You know, since then, fortunately we've become a worldwide tour with people playing from almost every country. But I, I mean, again, I mean, you, I, you're not going to get that insight from anybody who is, you know, playing on tour today or, you know, in the commentator booth, you know, there's too much risk to put those kind of stories out there. So, well, you know, when, when you they, listen to when Tiger, they it, it's really eye-opening.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. If you listen to Tiger this week or Sunday, they had him on the um, the tournament at Riviera, and he doesn't share anything. He's no. so guarded. It's yeah. like it's, I mean, it's it's not even interesting, right? Yeah. I mean. But and the announcers, too, I think when they get to be the age of Ben, Wright, when he when he did those interviews with you or or Tony Jacklin, they'll
2: share things. But I'll tell you what, Uh, I will say say this. Let me give you a fault of mine. Uh, And I put a lot of thought into this because I I did, you know, my friend Ben Hogan with uh, Ben Wright. Uh, We did obviously the Beatles show. Uh, We did the Life and Times of Ben Wright. We did hours of interview. And, and I did bring up uh, in, in, uh, in one of those interviews the, the, uh, the elements that ended his career. Um, you know, I'll say I probably didn't press hard enough. You know what I mean? Uh, I think from a, I, I'm not a journalist, so maybe I get away with this, but um, you know, I, I think I probably could have pushed a little deeper into uh his feelings about how that happened what happened he talks a little bit about it you know do you have any remorse for it i probably could have pressed harder you know now that i'm what in my fourth season of the podcast um at the same time you know the element of the show also has to fit the questions that are asked uh and i it was mentioned i did mention it but at the same time
1: yeah but i think Connor, in it's, your defense, you're in his home. His wife's there. Yeah, no, I mean, but I, mean, I think it's, it's
2: I could have gone deeper there. I think I I probably should have gone deeper. Um, but it's not going to change what happened or how I would say how he responded. You know, I'm, you're also dealing with somebody who was not in great health. Not to make excuses, but you know, I, I don't. I didn't receive any criticism from it, but I know um, I I juggled that during the interview of how hard to press and, you know, kind of made a judgment call. And I think I look back at podcasts sometimes and I think that's one of them where I might've asked one more question. Yeah.
1: Um, The other, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to name some of the podcasts that I really enjoyed the, uh, the birth and death of golf in America was great. The, the Willie park senior stuff was excellent. The old Tom, young Tom stuff was excellent. Herbert Warren Wind, I'm in the middle of that one now. I'm loving that. that Yeah, that's a good Um, guy. And I talked about, I I listened to all three of the Ben Wrights, the Tony Jacklin. Al Geiberger, I have to tell you, I was living in Seattle. He was living there. And there was an indoor golf trainer. This was uh, like the first online golf trainer. So you would go to, it was called Bogart Golf. You would go to their facility in Redmond you would get a lesson from a PGA master professional. Right. And then you could view it online. Oh, wow. right. Cool. So I'm taking lessons from this guy. His name's Chuck Notestone, And, um, in walks Al Guyberger and his son, who was probably 12 at the time, this would have been like 1998. So 24 yeah. years ago. Yeah. And so I'm standing there. I meet him very nice guy. Um, And I swear to God, this is true. I'm watching him. So then he starts hitting some balls. Yeah. And he says, Hey, can you tell me what you think of this move? Right. And Chuck is saying, well, you're, I don't remember what he said, but you're too inside or whatever. And he worked with him. next week. He won. Oh, wow. That's, I mean, that's pretty good. Right. I mean, um, it was like that, right. It could be just one little thing at that level. Yeah. Of shooting 74 or 69, it could be one little thing. But the thing that I found fascinating I mean, the whole thing was fascinating the interview with Al Geiberger. But the fact that he finished 15 under and never shot in the 60s it's insane, right? I mean, talk about great golf trivia. How do you?
2: Yeah, I don't, it'll never be matched. That's a crazy stat. Crazy stat. And you yeah. know, that, that interview. Um, you know when you do the editing process you don't kind of hear all the things that went through it Al was fantastic a delightful person next time I'm in Palm Springs I'm going to take him out to dinner Um, but you know we're doing this interview at La Quinta Country Club and by the way this is no fault other than my own so I'm putting the onus on me before I say this but so we're doing the interview and we're in the board meeting or in the boardroom and we know that at four o'clock uh, the board members are going to come in. So I know, I know my timetable and they warned me like, you know, the, the head of the board might come in a little early, you know, just to let me know. So we're kind of in the process of like winding down the interview, but I've got like two more, at least two more critical questions. And Al's, you know, really going on about one of the questions. And I'm, you know, trying to get it like, we got to get going, you know, but he's it's so good. I don't want to cut him off. And the door opens the boardroom. Some of it, I think, if you listen really well, you might hear some of this on the podcast. But so the door opens a little bit, and it's, I assume, the president of the club. And he, he pokes his head in. And he's like, what's going on in here? And like, you know, Al stops. And I'm like, oh, you know, we're doing a podcast. It's, you know, Al Geiberger talking golf history, all this stuff. And he's like, okay. And so then he just walks in. And again, it's his boardroom, not mine. So he sits down. And I ask him another, I ask Al another question. And the, the president, like literally when Al's answer, he goes, hey, uh, Al, where do you live now? Like right in the middle of the question. So, or, you know, Al stops and he answers the question and then we go back and Al's starting to, you know, answer the question for the podcast. And the, the gentleman goes, hey, Al, what do you shoot nowadays? You still playing golf? I mean, <laughs> like it became two interviews at the same time. And so finally, we're, you know, we kind of wrapped up and I think, you know, then the other board members are coming in and I'm trying to get Al out of there because I'm trying to be, you know, grateful for their time. And they wanted to talk to Al Geiber. I mean, it's Al Geiber, right? Mr. 59. And so Al is just, just the nicest person in the world, like wants to give them all, you know, an hour of his time. And, you know, it, it, it just, he is the most delightful person. He is probably one of the kindest people I've ever interviewed.
1: Yeah. Well, I need to wind down. I need to wind this one down because yeah. I've got a one thirty meeting. But um, there are some – I'll send you an email with a couple of questions because when we post this, I'd like to um, get your take on, on two more – a couple of more things. Sure. Um, actually, actually, I'll send you one question. The final question that, that I'll ask is,
2: What's a, is there anything left on your golf bucket list? Oh, wow. Um, hmm. I don't, first of all, I don't have bucket lists. I never have. Um, I don't know if that's helped or hurt me. I've been able to play a lot of great courses. Most of the great courses that people would name, um, I've played them already, so that's been great. Um, I'll I'll give you two. So one, uh, I have yet to play Shinnecock Hills. I'd love to have that opportunity. And then uh, given the time of day, the opportunity to walk the course to see if I could find, the layout of the original holes that held um, the, uh, U- first, well, the first US Open hosted by Shinnecock. So I'd love that. Uh, second of all is a bucket list, if you'd call it, an item that I plan on doing, maybe even as soon as this year, is I want to do a take the show on the road to Scotland and film some shows over there, uh, two of which I have in mind, um, but one I'll tell you, it's called A Golf Historian's Guide To. So in other words, it's a golf historian's guide to St. Andrews. So we go to St. Andrews and possibly film and record on location. And we talk about all those things, those pieces of history that aren't on the golf course, that surround the golf course, that shape the history of the golf course and golf in St. Andrews. And just tell people a different type of history outside of the, you know, young Tom Morris and old Tom Morris and all the great opens that have been played there. I think that'd be fascinating for me. I just think, and I'd love it for the golf too. I'm not gonna lie. I mean, going yeah. over Scotland's one of the great things you can do as a golfer. It's, it should be a pilgrimage that every true great golfer tries to do in their lifetime. And to get a, another deeper level of that history in a podcast would be uh, sublime for me. What about, um, what, do you think they'll let you uh, film inside the RNA? I don't know, to be honest with you. I know a couple members. I thought you were gonna say, do you think they'd make you a member of the RNA? And I was like, that would be great. <laughs> that yeah. would be great. Uh, no, I don't know if they will or not. I, I don't think any one given show would be, you know, locked in step with having to film there. I would, listen, if, if I didn't get to have a camera in there, I would be fine just to walk it. I'll be honest with you. I've, I've been to Scotland a couple times. And in both cases, one with my father and one with my a uh, couple friends, neither of them we had invitations to go inside the RNA clubhouse, but of course you wear a jacket. And my dad was like, Yeah, I don't feel like wearing a jacket. I was like, Dad, dad it's the RNA. Like, let's get this tour. You know, I just, you know, let's just go get some food. It was kind of his mindset. So I was, I'm broke.
1: I'm still laughing. I've got a very good friend who's a member as a matter of fact we had him on the podcast and I've been in there several times and this past summer my girlfriend and I spent the entire summer in St. Andrews and we rented a house
0: 150
1: yards from the old course and we went over one day and had lunch with him and it never gets old going through there I mean you'll be Mm. blown away by the artwork um you know and well, if you, if you do exactly. need it in, let, if you do need it in, let me know. I, I can connect you with my buddy.
2: Okay, I'd say between that and seeing the archives of the uh, right, uh, the University of St Andrews would be the two things that I would love to see on my next trip to St Andrews.
1: Well, you'll, you'll yeah, but in there you'll see the grave sites of Old Tom and Young Tom. You'll have Loney's and Old Tom's shop and the homes that they lived in. And yeah, uh, I mean. You know, a tour of the bunkers and, you know, how some of them got their names. And I mean, it's, you could see it's, it's certainly uh, more than one podcast, right?
2: You could do. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've done maybe two podcasts that had elements of St. Andrews. I mean, there's, it's an infinite amount of history at St. Andrews to dive into. I mean, as, as noticed by some of the great golf books that have come out of that uh, unbelievable city, right? Uh, Roger McStravick right. is a great friend of mine, and, and you know every year to two years he's writing a new book about the history of St Andrews, which I find fascinating every single single time. There's a new book with new elements and things you didn't know, and you know history from from a golf standpoint. It's one of our oldest sports; it's almost an infinite amount of information to be studied. Right. Have you met David Joy? I have not. No. Oh no, I have. I actually I met him. Uh, He came to a USGA symposium at Pinehurst years ago, decades ago. I gave a speech on Hagen's Last Hurrah, which was the story of Hagen's tour in 1929, where he played in the Ryder Cup and um, won his last major championship. And David was there. I met him there. Unbelievable gentleman. We
1: hired him probably 15 years ago. We had a, a final. Every year we give out a a replica of the Claret Jug to the winner of our final day little tournament. Oh, cool. Yeah. And we had it at this really nice restaurant called the Pete Inn. And I paid him what was the equivalent of $900 to come in full regalia. And he had a caddy with him. Yeah. And he He, never broke
2: Morris. right?
1: Old Tom Morris. He never broke character, including when I was paying him in the parking lot.
2: Right. I mean, he never
1: came out of, it was fascinating. Anyway, I hate
2: to cut this short. No, it's all right. We'll do it again another time if you want.
1: Connor, this was uh, outstanding. Um, I'll follow up with you um, with one last question so that we can put that in the uh, header of the um, of the podcast. Okay. But yeah. you were fantastic, you know, and, and keep doing what you're doing. We'll share as well how they can reach out to you and, yeah, you and how they can listen to the podcast. It's excellent. Really. Thank you for
2: that it's, you know, I think you probably know, I doing a podcast that we were mentioning before it, it can be a grind, especially when you try to get a podcast out every two weeks. And I go through these, you know, valleys and peaks. And sometimes you're like, you know, is it worth it? And then you hear something like this. And it reminds you that people enjoy it outside of the work that you put into it, you know? Right. So it's well, what you, so you need
1: is an assistant like Hayden to do it for you. Hayden, come
2: that on man, over, man. come down to Tampa
0: It's nice and warm Well that was a pleasure talking with Connor today We want to thank him again for coming on the podcast um, If you guys enjoyed it Please share this video and podcast uh, If you're ready to take on Your own trip to the British Isles uh, Visit our website RoyalLinksGolfTours.com Fill out the custom Vacation customization form And uh, we'll uh, start Planning your unforgettable trip See you next week